0: Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Alexander, the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation, and I'm joining you here from uh, the interval, a very quiet version of the interval uh, during the quarantine time and We've been looking uh, at our back catalog for uh, for things to bring to you um, that were particularly relevant, um, or in some cases, a possible escape from this time. But one of the talks that I feel is one of the most powerful ones we've ever done uh, in many ways and important, uh, especially during this time as we cross some pretty large thresholds uh, of the pandemic. And that one uh, is uh, Frank Ostaseski, the founder of uh, Zen Hospice.
1: I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world.
0: Uh, Frank, it's so good to see you, uh, even if uh, not in person. Um, how, are, how are you doing through this time?
2: Yeah, thank you, Xander. Nice to be with you and uh, in the audience as well. Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Um, a lot of learning going on right now, you know? Um, seeing the tremendous mm, kind of partitioning of our country is difficult, but also being, bearing witness to some of the kindness, uh, more kindness than I can remember in a long time. Both of these things are happening, yeah.
0: Um, one of the first questions that came through uh, from Trey Bolchewski uh, asking about proximity and so much of what you talked about is really sitting with people and I think one of the really profound difficulties of the death that's happening now is that these These people are not dying with uh, their family and friends and hospice members, but, you know, possibly just a very overworked uh, hospital staff in a kind of an emergency mode. And um, I just wanted to get your sense of of how that's, how you're seeing some of that play out um, and what some ways that we could possibly prepare ourselves for it.
2: Well, of course, it's it's an impossible situation that we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, I, I... I have a lot of confidence in people's good hearts, actually, Um, both in the people who are going through the dying process, their family, even if they're at a distance, and also the caregivers and clinicians that are caring for them, even if they are in overworked and in emergency mode, as you say. Um, Dying gets our attention, and I find that what's happening now is that even in these really difficult circumstances, the friends of mine are on the front lines, they're stopping they're stopping to be with people who are dying and, um, uh, they might not, have, they might not have done that before, but because there's so much dying happening now, it's really getting their attention. They're stopping. We, we got to get it that, you know, those folks on the front lines, I, I'm not so big on the word hero. I, I think heroes get us in trouble, but I think that, um, there's really good hearts there. You know, you know, uh, Xander, I, I had a stroke, uh, last July. And then I had a series of strokes after that. One of them, I was with Stuart and Ryan actually and having lunch and then I went to the, I had a stroke and went to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, there was a nurse in the ER and he was incredibly kind to me. And I, I it got my attention. I said to him, I said, how do you get so kind working in the ER? Usually you guys are cowboys. And he said, oh, I had a good teacher. And he began to describe a mentor that he had. And the mentor, um, told him how to be with people at the end of life, how to slow down, how to um, listen more than talk. And uh, as he was talking about this mentor, I leaned over to Vanda, my wife, and I said, he's talking about Scott. And Scott was one of my students. And so Vanda said to him, oh, you're caring for your mentor's mentor now. And the nurse began to cry. And, it, you know, there was just this whole human being there. It was ordinary in a certain way, you know. And I think there's lots of people like him um, that are with folks at this time of dying. And, yeah, of course it's difficult. People are dying on ventilators and isolated, alone, away from family. But remember, many of the people who died with us at Zen Hospice didn't have family either. They had us. Yeah.
0: Um. We, we've spoken a little bit about normalization of death, and I think there's some kinds that are maybe more helpful than others. Um, I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit.
2: Well, as, as I said in the talk, I think it's, you know, death is in a way ordinary. It's normal. It's going to happen to all of us. And so in that way, it's really good to normalize it. But I think there's a challenge now about normalizing the experience that we're in the midst of. I don't think this is so helpful to normalize this. I think it can lead to a kind of moral apathy. Uh, We can get overwhelmed by statistics and numbers and um, and forget about the individuals, the people that are going through this process. So um, I I don't want to, I want to stay sensitized to this suffering. I don't want it to just become the next thing, the the new normal. Um, That lacks a great deal of imagination to me, yeah.
0: Uh, that's interesting. So, normalizing of death itself um, is one thing, but um, normalizing the suffering is kind of another thing.
2: Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think we have to understand this is an unusual circumstance, and there are lots of conditions that are leading to this particular circumstance besides a virus, which is rampant. And so, um, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. What docs and nurses are facing in hospitals is not normal. And um, and I, we have to be careful that we don't become apathetic when we again when we're struck by these enormous figures of a hundred thousand people dying in our country alone. Um, yeah. So we need to be careful there, I think. But yes, death is part of experience, as I say. It, you know, it's uh, life without death is only half a life. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, I mean, and furthering on that thought, I think, you know, your, the first invitation that you had don't wait, I think seems to have particular resonance now, you know, we've learned not to wait too late to go into quarantine, we've also learned, you know, as you mentioned, don't tell your loved ones that you love them too late. Um, but is there, is there more on this do, on don't wait that is you think is relevant during this time?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that we should be thinking about this moment is having those honest conversations with our family and friends, uh, creating an advanced directive, which really spells out quite specifically what you want and what you don't want. You know, there are choice points now when we go to a hospital. Do we go to the hospital? When we get there, do we go into an ICU? When we go to an ICU, do we choose to be ventilated? These are all really difficult decisions that we have to think through in advance because our family member won't be with us in, uh, at that moment, likely. They might be on a phone. So write it down and tape it to your chest if you go to the hospital, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. well, Stuart Brand, you know, the founder of this series uh, has been very public about uh, his directives um, and I think they've surprised a lot of people and and I think in a good way to, internalize some of these choices when, when you can. Um, that's been, I think, very helpful for a lot of us.
2: Yeah, he and I have been having that conversation. And it's, you know, we talked about in the beginning, remember, we were, it was ventilators all the time, always well, we talking about ventilators. Well, the reality is that, you know, we know that the um, mortality rates for those on ventilators are very, is very high. And um, people need to be able to make informed decisions about that. They need to know what the survival rates are particularly if they have comorbidities or they're of a certain age, yeah. So let's think these through in advance and talk to our healthcare clinicians as well about it, yeah.
0: Um, John Grinnell, uh, watching, um, asks, how do we turn towards suffering when we're so biologically programmed to avoid suffering? Um, (laughs) It's a a little bit counterintuitive, yeah.
2: No, it's a good question. And to remember that we're more than our biology You know, uh, I think that we have to understand that as human beings, we have other capacities besides our instinctual drives. Um, We have innate compassion also, and uh, we can draw on it. Um, You know, compassion isn't, normally we think about it as um, relieving suffering, taking away suffering, and that's great if we can do it, but we can't always do it. But What compassion can do is allow us to tolerate suffering, to be with it, until our defenses against it fall down. And then we have uh, a chance to really look and see what are the actual causes of the suffering. Because it isn't always just the physical experience, it isn't just the biological experience. Our relationship to that experience is also a cause of our suffering. So we need to investigate that and see. And that's where we have some choice.
0: Yeah. Um, and Marianne Gallagher um, asked a question I, I think um, that you probably get a lot is, you know, uh, do you have any other uh, more stories from uh, people's approach towards death, kind of like the red schoolhouse? Is there any uh, is, are there convergences there, or what, what? What do you have to say about that?
2: Well, I I think that we have seen cross culturally there are lots of similarities in what people either imagine or see in the time of their dying process, um, and there's lots of similarities in in those in those uh, images and experiences, I, I think that um, what often happens is that people find what is comforting to them, what is familiar to them. That may be their religious training or their cultural you know, heritages or their family stories. You know, They might see mom or they might see Buddha or they might see a little red schoolhouse. Yeah, um, And it's usually often something that comes from very early in life. You know, those memories are laid down on old tracks in the in our nervous system and that's often what shows up for people. Yeah.
0: I, I was having a conversation um with Charles Mann, the historian, and about the nineteen eighteen pandemic. Um and he mentioned that one of the things that was really uh Written about after that was the loss of so much of, the, of an, an elderly population that it felt like they had lost their memory and their wisdom all at once, and I think you know we're seeing similar patterns here, um, hopefully never on the scale of that one. but um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, um, on losing so much of this memory and, and wisdom?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know in, the, in our culture, the wet, in the West, we tend not to honor our elders in quite the same way we do in other cultures. Um, Now we're maybe, until we've lost what they have to offer us. Um, Also, people get old without becoming elders, right? Um, I think one of the things that we have to look at, uh, you know, I I cut my teeth on the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, we now have millions, millions and millions and millions of people uh, that have died of HIV and AIDS. And one of the things that happened in the beginning was that there were certain groups of people that were disposable, gay men, IV drug users, sex workers, they were not considered valuable. And I think we have to look and see, are we having that idea about our elders now? Are we valuing what they have? To, are we really taking care of them? Are we giving them all the protection that they deserve? That's a question that's emerging for me in this pandemic. Um what happens if we lose institutional memory? What happens if we lose the wisdom that comes from generations before us? I think um, um that's not a new normal that I want to um, move toward
0: yeah yeah and it's it's especially becoming a question as people are getting frustrated with quarantine um and you know you increasingly hear these thoughts of like i don't care if I get it and
2: um yeah, but I, I care if my elders get it. You know exactly. We gotta yeah. think about our elders and not just elders, but people who have other underlying conditions. Um, this is just a mutual respect, actually. It's not a political question. It's a question of heart, actually. And at least in my mind. Yeah.
0: Indeed. Uh and that's a, a good transition to uh Stephen Hubbard's question uh came in. Um What can we do to encourage society's leaders to speak openly and honestly about death? Have you had any luck
2: in this space? (laughs) Depends on the leaders. Uh, I mean, of course, I've been speaking about this a lot since the beginning of the pandemic. uh, With Anybody who will listen. And I think it's important to recognize that there are good leaders. There are smart people out there. I mean, and there are people who are lacking in empathy. you know i i would point to fauci who did some good work during the hiv epidemic as well i think he's been level headed and um a, a calm voice and i'm glad he's in the room even though not everybody in the room listens to him um i'm not so much for shaming people and um and only reacting with anger i'm, I'm much more a person who likes to mm, Move from being a good example about what's possible, and I think yes, it would be great if our leaders spoke positively about this. And we can do this. You know, we're the ones we've been waiting for. We can do this. Leaders or no leaders, we can make this choice. We can take care of each other. This is in our bones, and um, and it's now our responsibility.
0: Yeah. Um, Mary uh, asks. Um, for some input for uh, caregivers, it might be that she's one of them, um, but uh, who have access to, you know, who, who may only have access to Zoom or some other telehealth thing at this time. Have, have you seen some experience with this, um, of these last experiences really being mediated by technology now? or? Yeah, or I mean, it's, happen-
2: it's happening a lot, and thank God we have it, you know? I mean, isn't it remarkable, Xander, that we have this? They didn't have this in 1918. sure didn't. And, you know, that we can have, you know, these kind of conversations and still be safe um, and keep our loved ones safe. That's really, that's important. So, yeah, sure, it's happening all the time. I am speaking to nurses and docs who are working in skilled nursing facilities and large medical centers, and yes, they can be very rushed, and yes, sometimes they can only give the most cursory information, but I also know nurses that have stayed out long after their shift and holding up an iPad to an elder um, so that their family can be with them. I'm happy that we have the technology to do that, and it's even translating into after-death rituals, uh, funerals, and and memorials that um, uh, people are conducting over Zoom. Uh, it's maybe less than ideal, but it's a way of marking um this kind of loss. Yeah. Uh
0: Ryan Phelan, uh, who's uh, watching online, um, uh, is asking, uh what what does make a good elder? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well that's a whole nother um webinar. We'll have to come back and do that one. <laughs> but you know, Uh, She could turn to the guy next to her. You know, he'd probably have something wise to say about this. Um, You know, I think it's somebody who's learned from their lived experience. The elders that I know aren't just um, those with good theories. They've fallen down many times. You know, in Zen we have that expression, fall down seven times, get up eight And I think that's one of the characteristics that goes to an elder. It's an elder is one who also knows her heart, you know, who understands that that mind can discern and distinguish clearly, but the heart reveals what's true. And uh, I think um, wise elders have wise hearts. And so um, these are just some of the qualities, of course, and we could name a number of others, but um, we've all had some contact with a wise elder somewhere in our life, I'm sure, yeah.
0: Huh. Indeed, um, and uh, Brett Cox uh, asks, um, "How would you change modern healthcare in order to approach palliative care better? What's where are the gaps that you see there?"
2: Oh boy, um, there's quite a few. Um, well, one of the things that palliative care and hospice care um, have in common is that they they emphasize comfort. They emphasize really uh, not leaving people in intractable pain. So managing pain and controlling symptoms are common to both of those uh, schools of of medicine. Hospice care, of course, is specific to people who find themselves in the final six months of life. Palliative care doesn't necessarily have that um, limitation. Um, The other thing that happens in both those systems is everybody works as a team. And so there's no lone wolves working, no physician or nurse are working as a lone wolf. So there's a kind of balance that can be brought forward, a, an equanimity that can come forward from the team, from different perspectives. Um, those are things that I think we could benefit from in the rest of medicine. Um, well, let's, let's, let's just say that. If we did those things, that'd be great. It'd huh? <laughs> yeah. be nice to start yeah.
0: somewhere, yeah. Um, and um, I'm going to ask. Just we're going to wrap up here pretty soon, um, but it's been really great to do this live. Um, uh, Tim Van Loan um, asked, and uh, I thought this would be a helpful uh, closing question. Um, you know, that these invitations are really powerful and helpful, um, but he could also see losing them in in the distractions of life. And are there is there a way that you suggest to help keep them at heart?
2: Well, I think um, when we let them drop into our hearts in a way, they become guideposts for us. They become orienting, they become our compass. They help us to orient so that we don't lose track of them. You know, um, I sit on my meditation cushion every day because it stabilizes me. It helps me to regulate, but it also orients me toward my day. Uh, find some simple practices which help you do that, whether it's take one of these precepts or one of these invitations or something else that orients you. I I have a really simple practice right now that I'm doing. I go to bed at night and I lie in bed and sometimes I'm quite scared and sometimes because of my strokes I have physical problems. And I put my hand on my heart and I try to remember the people who are now in pain alone at night. And I'm very bad at self-compassion, but... Compassion emerges with just that reflection and it spills over onto me. And in the morning, I get up in the morning and and I put my hand on my heart again and I say, okay, I choose love today. Love, what would you have me do today? And again, it stabilizes me and guides me. And it's not California. woo; These are central practices in my life that I think can help orient us toward uh, living a kinder, more compassionate, wise life. Yeah. Keep it simple. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I guess this is a good moment uh, for me to also mention that you know, the the, the, uh, the reason, or at least the uh, timing of the last talk, coincided with uh, the release of your amazing book that um, that also covers these topics. So if people do want to learn more. I would I would highly recommend it. It's been helpful in my household. Um, and I I wrote down a quote during your talk that um, that I feel is important to leave on and. Uh, this, and i think a very long now quote which is that the past and the future are just stories what is happening now is the only real experience or true experience i can't remember exactly how you said it but um uh, i think that's a really powerful and helpful quote for right now um thank you frank this has been really so helpful
2: jander thank you and thank you to the long now for doing this i mean it's a big Absolutely. gift to the world so thank you for doing this and all the other work of course you do all the time Thank
0: you. Thank you, guys. Um, thank you all for joining and uh, see you at the next event, I hope. Thank you. Bye bye.
1: This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long term thinking. Thank you for listening.